This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Jay Bowen is the manager of, amongst other things, the Tampa Firefighters and Police uh, Pension Fund. His firm has been managing that for over 45 years. Their performance numbers are, are quite spectacular. They approach this in an absolutely unique way. Uh, in fact, so unique, it's become known as the Tampa model. No consultants, no third parties, no alternatives, just stocks and bonds managed by a single firm at a very low cost. Uh, they run about a dozen other uh, pension farms uh, in, around, in and around uh, Southern Florida, uh, as well as elsewhere. This is really a, a masterclass on how to manage a pension fund, how to keep your costs in line, how to avoid the usual expensive consultants and third-party managers. Uh, it's really quite fascinating. It's always interesting when you speak with someone who's a unique contrarian and approaches the world in a different way and has been very successful uh, using that model. If you are remotely interested in long-term investing, uh, foundations and pensions, or just hearing someone who uh, has a, a unique approach, I believe you're going to find this conversation fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bowen and Haynes, Jay Bowen. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Jay Bowen. He is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Bowen, Haynes & Company. The firm has managed the Tampa Firefighters and Police Officers Pension Funds for over 45 years, performing consistently in the top quartile versus its peers. It is one of the few pension funds in the United States that is effectively fully funded. Uh, the total return on the portfolio since its inception has been nearly 14,000%. Uh, the annual return is of the stock portion is 14.6%, handily outperforming uh, the benchmark. The total return has been 11.9% annualized. That beats the S&P 500. Um, quite impressive for a stock and bond portfolio. Jay Bowen, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much. Great Am I getting your name right, Bowen? That's it. All right. That's it. So you have really, this is a fascinating story that I don't know if many people are familiar with. Your father founded Bowen, Haynes & Company in 1972, uh, eventually becoming the person running the Tampa Firefighters and, and Police Officers Pension Fund. You took the fund over in the early 2000s, is that right? I be, uh, assumed day-to-day -day responsibility in 2000, right. Right. Were you working for the firm before that? Yes. I came on board in, actually in 1987. So what was your career path? First of all, did you know you always wanted to go into finance with a father running a pension fund? I did not, but I grew up with my father taking monthly trips to Tampa, mm -hmm. and I knew he was going somewhere on business. Right. And when he would come home, he would go down every month Right. in the, in the 70s, and um, he would take me down when I had a vacation or had a few days off from grammar school and I became kind of enamored with the with the Tampa Bay area, I did, did not know that I was going to uh, eventually uh, be involved in the business. I was very, I was an English major, very liberal arts oriented, mm -hmm. um, but became fascinated and drawn, really, I wasn't a numbers person, I wasn't a math person. I was fascinated and drawn to the policy debate. Um, the economic policy debate, I really became focused on that. And with the top-down approach that the firm took, I kind of entered it that way. What was your What was your first job right out of college? I was in sales, mm -hmm. uh, marketing-oriented, very, very So you didn't jump in right into the family I, business, so to speak. I didn't jump right in. Um, but what happened was in 1986, I went up to a Washington conference, policy conference, mm -hmm. And I was just so drawn and so, and I'd always been that way really throughout my life, very focused on uh, policies and politics and what was going on and what it meant and what it might mean to the financial markets. And so I really, after that conference, it just 
really became inevitable that I wanted to, to get involved. Um, was your father interested in the sort of macroeconomic analysis as applied to investing, or was that something that he thought uh, wasn't necessarily relevant? He was interested in it and thought, you know, as you know, there are all different ways to do this business. Sure. There's bottom up, there's top down, there's there's uh, black boxes, computerized models, there are, and and phenomenally successful ways. We've just always gone about it from a top-down perspective. And he was top-down primarily. I'll tell you why. Um, because when he started the firm in the early 70s, I mean, sure. it was a great time to focus on inflationary expectations sure. and what that might mean to financial markets. So multiple recessions, um, big pullbacks in the market. 73, 74 was right. about a 57% drop. Uh Real real bond yields were effectively zero with inflation at 10, 12 percent. Yeah, you know, there's an amazing when you look at it over long periods. I mean, there was a period from 1968 to 1982 when the market had a negative real return. Stocks had a negative real return. And that was, in my view, the way we view the world, that was because of um, really anti-growth policies mm -hmm. and a very counterproductive Federal Reserve in terms of from uh, and then the the, 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 the Fed uh, basically funding the the, the uh, uh, ratifying the inflation during in, the 70s in the 60s and 70s what are your thoughts on someone like Paul Volcker who comes in and says oh well let's do this and and basically takes the Fed funds rate up to double digits right that was a really important turning point in terms of how we of course I wasn't on board then this was 80 uh, actually, Volcker came in in 79. Um, but there was a triple, triple threat that happened in the late 70s and early 80s. And mm -hmm. it really set the stage for a arguably the biggest bull market ever. Mm -hmm. um, and that was Paul Volcker coming in to break the back of inflation, which is so key to financial assets, price stability, um, uh, benign inflationary expectations. And then there was a deregulation effort that started in the, with Alfred Kahn at the, at the, at the airlines uh -huh. and trucking deregulation, airline deregulation, 79-80. And then Reagan came in um, with the tax reform mm -hmm. um, in terms of lower tax rates, higher after-tax returns, increasing incentives for work, risk-taking, investment, capital reform. I mean, all those three things together. Boom. Um, and of course, the, the Dow was sitting at 7, 750, 800 with no real return um, going all the way back to 1968. And I remember in uh, this is, I was still focused on policy, even though I was in college. I remember in 82, the tax cuts didn't take effect. And it was a, de they delayed the tax cuts. They passed the legislation in 80. The tax cuts didn't take effect until August of 82. Guess when the bull market started? August 82. August 82. Let's talk a little bit about the Tampa model. Your firm has managed the Tampa Firefighters and Police Officers Pension Funds for over 45 years. That's pretty unique in the world, isn't it? It's very unique. Uh, my father forged a relationship in 1974. We're now in the midst of our 45th year, as you, as you noted. Um, we've managed every penny the entire period. It's grown from $12 million to over $2 billion, and they've taken over a billion out. So uh, that's $3 billion total. Capital appreciation and yeah. income of over $3 billion, right? From right. $12 million. From $12 million. And obviously, there have been some contributions along the way. Contra yeah, but the net, there have been net outflows, which is, is what you want. Right. That's what it's for. That's what a pension fund is You want is to provide for, right? great retirements for these incredibly dedicated public safety employees. So it's, do, it's doing its job, right? See, I would imagine that you're completely ticket-proof in Florida. Then anybody pulls you over, it's like, I'm the guy who manages your <laughs> retirement account and they oh, of course. Uh, have a nice day, Mr. Bowen. Yeah, Tampa, Tampa, <laughs> I think my father was pretty safe within the city limits. And I, <laughs> right. I hope I am. <laughs> so you go from $12 million to over $3 billion, including outflows. To what do you credit this uh, performance? Yeah, it's a, it's a confluence of events. And by the way, my father forged, actually was involved with this fund in, 19, in the late 60s when he was with another institution before mm -hmm. he started his firm. Um, he helped kind of set the fund up and help with the investment policy statement back then. And then when he started his own firm, they were dissatisfied and came to him in 74. So that's, and hired him when it was at 12 million. And it's really, um, i tell you what, um, I think, and it's funny, the pension attorney down there coined this term and I love it. He said, you know what you've got here? And he, he, he sees pension, public pension funds all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, he's involved almost in every state 
uh, very prominent pension, public pension fund attorney. He said, you know, you in Tampa, he told the board, you all have a perfect rainbow. And he said, perfect rainbow because you've got a great city competent. You know, they're all kind of moving parts that determine sure. the health of a pension fund. We're just one component. We're an important one, but they're all kind of moving parts. I mean, you got, he said, you got a really competent, strong municipal city government. Well managed. Well, it's if Tampa were a stock, I'd be buying it. Can, can I tell you, um, I've visited Tampa repeatedly over the past few decades. Tampa is a booming city. 20, 30 years ago, yeah. that it was kind of a mess. You know who else has seen that is Jeff Vinnick. Oh, really? Um, Jeff Finnick is, he is Mr. Fidelity. Fidelity. He is Mr. Tampa now. Oh, he moved I didn't down know that. There. He, he purchased the hockey team uh -huh. and is involved in a massive development effort on the waterfront. So he saw the value there a few years ago, and he's very involved in Tampa. And as I say, if Tampa were a stock, I, I would be buying it. But uh, a competent city government, and here's the important line, that funds the pension fund. They fund it. Right. They put the money in. A lot of these municipalities that are in such trouble don't. Um, so Tampa actually, it's a, it's. I think it's the best run major city in America. Huh. I really do. That, so that's quite interesting. That, that's one component. Number two, they have a board, a nine-member board that is extremely responsible on the benefit side. You know, they're not reckless in terms of, a la the Dallas Fire and Police in right. terms of uh, promising all these, these. These it's a very very responsible, dedicated board. And then number three. The third part of the perfect rainbow is that we've had good investment returns. Mm -hmm. it, it's so easy to make promises that come due decades in the future and not to fund it, because by the time uh, people are pointing fingers, the, the people responsible are long gone. Right. So, so how to what do you attribute Tampa avoiding what is a typical fate of lo local governments and municipalities? which is to just kick the can down the road as far as they can. And we see it in the pension space with very high expected returns for expensive hedge funds. And that ends up being matched with very low actual returns. What, what's, the, what's the secret to good city government? Yeah, I, I just think it's they have the board. Of course, it's run by the board. There are three firemen, three policemen, and three people appointed by the city. Um, and they've just been... Uh, it's 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 an extraordinary situation over the last forty five years. It's an extremely dedicated board, and I think here's one thing that I think is missed in this whole debate. And and pick your number four or five trillion dollar underfunded underfunded crisis uh, average mm -hmm. municipal fund. I think the funding ratio is thirty five percent. And you're in the nineties. Yeah, right? it's ninety eight. It's you know it's fully it's fully funded. But I think what they've done down there is they've realized what the They've never lost sight of what the core mission of this fund is. It's not to generate fees for layers and layers and layers of, of people. Mm -hmm. It's not to allocate assets to every asset class under the sun. Um, it's to provide a good, stable retirement for these public safety employees. And to do that, um, they've and with their focus firmly on that, They've avoided a lot of the conflicts of interest. When you mm -hmm. look at a lot of these funds, there's just enormous conflicts. And just to, I can give you one small anecdote to give you an example of, of how they've stayed out of trouble. Back in, I wasn't on board, but my father used to love to tell the story of the mayor down there in the, they were the mayor of Tampa in the mid 70s. After he was mayor, he became chairman of a major insurance company. Mm -hmm. And he made a presentation to the board to put uh, uh, quite a, large percentage of the fund in, in, in insurance products, right. guaranteed investment contracts, uh, annuities, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he thought he had it in the bag. He, he was the mayor. Um, he knew some of the city trustees. Uh, and so the old the, boy the, network, the, full the, effect, the, right? The, the sales crew from New York came down in their fancy suits and they gave the presentation and the board voted him down. <laughs> and it was just a stunner. Nobody could believe that the board, but what? I mean, this never happens. I mean, usually funds like that are riddled with these kind of conflicts. Right. Um, and they have always, I mean, there are exceptions every now and then with board members, but for the most part, it's extremely dedicated board that have, they've, they've avoided the pitfalls and the conflicts of interest. You know, earlier we were discussing some of the pushback to your model of not using consultants, not using third parties who might add fees no alternatives like hedge funds or, or private equity. Um, how unusual is that set up in the world of pension funds? It's unprecedented, uh, exceedingly 
unusual. In fact, when the trustees go to these conferences, I mean, I cringe a little bit. They go to these investor conferences that are sponsored by consultants and everybody else, and they for, for, they're all always at these conferences, national conferences, and they're swarmed, of course, by various service providers. And what you can't have one manager. That's fiduciarily irresponsible. You can't do it. It's reckless. It's irresponsible. And then uh, my, my, the, the former chairman of the board, policeman, I used to love it. He would carry around the compounded annual return in his back pocket, and he would just show it. Here's the, my returns. How are you doing? And, and they would just go, oh, okay, well, we'll see later. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> hey, can you keep up with this? If you can't, don't always start. To- I recall some time ago, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about, I want to say it was in Nevada. Somebody is managing a small pension fund. And effectively, uh, he comes into the office each day with his crossword puzzle. I, I remember that. Everything is in indexes. He doesn't do yep. anything. And their cost structure is, is – that's the only other example I'm familiar with of somebody approaching single manager, no consultant, no third parties. I remember that article. But, so now that's two. Uh, are there anybody else who remotely even – at least is thinking or looking at this sort of model? You know, it's funny because you would think, I mean, we have received a lot of national acclaim over the years because of the uniqueness and the performance. But the industry, there's the model, the consultant-driven multi-manager model, they have got such a stranglehold on the industry that there really, there is, they're going halfway towards indexing. Right. But in terms of a core, that's like a SOP. That's like here's a little bit of indexing, and now let us. We are seeing a move towards that within the municipal arena. Mm -hmm. But a move towards a core, one core unconstrained manager for the bulk of the assets. No, Um, it it doesn't matter. The the, the evidence can be so overwhelming and so powerful in terms of the potential benefits from a return standpoint, from a fee standpoint. But um, it's it's never accepted within that arena. And one question I always have, not that we're in this league, is that everybody says it's it's reckless and irresponsible and how can you do it and there's one man and i'm always thinking in the back of my mind well you know warren buffett and charlie munger they're two of them and they manage what 50 not that we're in that league but they manage 50 or 60 billion and they're just two of them i think it's even more than that these um, days and yet you don't hear the you don't hear the you know we gotta we gotta break it up we've <laughs> got to break it up we got to put some of that we got to there some there, of that. there have been people um, who have suggested that over times mm-hmm. you know you you'll un- unleash a lot of value if we break up uh berkshire hathaway that that sort of anytime there's a big pool of money people right. are going to look at it as an opportunity to to capture some of it right. and if we break up uh berkshire hathaway uh, my firm is ready to stand to garner a whole bunch of uh in right. investment banking fees yeah. from the process. It's never coming out of academia. Objectively speaking, here here's why uh, Berkshire Hathaway should be broken up. Right. Um, so, but you bring up a really valid point, which is the pushback has been pretty outrageous. There were accusations about, uh, they wouldn't go so far as to say fraud, but accounting issues. And yeah. why do they change accountants so often? I read right. about this. It's like, uh, you, you, you. I'll let you defend yeah. it, but some of the pushback to this has been pretty. It's a, it's incredible, you know. In the in the in the, we do have a First Amendment, and I love it. And we've got in the digital age, and you know, the the free flow of information, the flow of information. Anybody, particularly in the blogosphere and online, you know, you can say anything. Right, and it's out there, and it's funny. It it there's just we are the enemy, apparently to the to the standard conventional model the, mm-hmm. it, it, i think we're a threat i think we're a threat and some of these to their fee structure or to the overall model itself the model our model i think is a threat to the multi-manager consultant driven model and so there's a been a concerted effort and this listen we've heard this my dad heard it throughout the 70s and 80s i mean he he listen he laid the groundwork i mean i'm the beneficiary of what mm-hmm. he did he he's the one that had to get bloody Back in the 70s and 80s when, man, they were coming after that fund, even though it wasn't as big. They were coming after it like you wouldn't believe. But what happened was the results were so good that all of a sudden the city started being on our side. Because right. the city, it's great for the city when the Having municipal a fully funded fund, pension they, fund were, yeah. they were able to cut taxes. Right. Um, so they became allies. Let's talk a little bit about your investing style and, and where we are in the 
market cycle. You describe yourself as a top-down thematic investor. What, what does that mean? Yeah, and one important thing to note with this relationship, which is a pretty extraordinary, being top-down and thematic, we're able to really, and the board allows us to focus on the real long-term, and I mean real long-term. They actually, and I can say this with a straight face, and they would tell you with a straight face, they take a 20-year investment approach. Mm-hmm. They really do. Uh, Which makes sense for a pension fund, just it does. most, most the, don't. The actu- Yeah, and the actuaries love the 20 years because it, that's the kind of the average snapshot of a career of a public safety employee. Uh-huh. But the reason we take a 20-year is that we found that there hadn't been a 20-year period that has not included a bull market and a bear market Right. and a recession, and a speculative bubble, and a war. I mean, throughout the financial history, um, we love. I think that's a great time frame to measure the competency of a manager in all time periods. And we can show now, every, every October when I go down there to review the fiscal year, which is there on the September fiscal, we show another 20-year rolling set of performance data. Mm-hmm. And right now we can show 25 sets of 20-year rolling performance. And you can show really good outperformance for each of the 20-year segments. So they've allowed us to take a 20-year approach, and it ties into the top-down thematic. And just to give you a couple of examples, when I say thematic and top-down, we're looking, we're trying to look at a variety of, particularly on the policy front, uh, tax policy, Mm -hmm. trade policy, fiscal policy, regulatory policy, international policy, even foreign policy. What does that mean to financial assets? What does it mean to stocks? What does it mean to bonds? Um, it's funny, as I said earlier, there are all kind of different ways to do this. I remember Peter Lynch, who I just thought was great. I remember him saying, you know, if I spend five seconds on economics, it's five seconds too much. Right. <laughs> he was bottom up and he was, fam- right. th- you know, the people, all kind of successful ways to do this. We've just always focused on the, on the top down. I mean, just to give you some examples in the early 80s, uh, it was really important to focus on the monetary and, and the tax in terms of what that might mean for inflationary expectations, for interest rates, um, for various industry uh, sector and industry categories. For mm-hmm. instance, my father determined after Volcker came in that we were going to that he was going to break the back of inflation, and I can remember him showing me some charts of Coca-Cola, Campbell's soup, flatlined. They had flatlined for ten. 15, 20 years, that's because of the infl- the ravages of inflation had really hurt. Heavily commodity uh, dependent, yeah, which the, is tied the to the dollar and inflation. Yep. They had done nothing. And it was his view that this was the time to really start shifting our emphasis to the Staples area, to household product companies and to food companies like Coca-Cola and Camel Soup, Procter & Gamble, those kind of companies. And so that flowed from the top-down viewpoint on inflation. And then the other side of it, what we talked about the deregulation, but what was going on on the tax front in terms of you had tax, the Tax Reform Act of 1980, and then you had the second round of, in 1986, which brought the top marginal rate down to 28%, believe it or not, and mm-hmm. you know, broadened the base, uh, did away with a lot of deductions and credits, made for a much more efficient, productive um, system that uh, raised real growth. We thought, with the top-down analysis that we did, that we were, we were in for a period of much faster real economic growth because of an increase of, of incentives for work and risk-taking and investment, capital formation. And so, number one, we thought the emphasis that you could really start focusing on stocks, common stocks again. As I said, from 68 to 82, the real return on stocks was negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a matter of, from a top-down standpoint, okay, we like common stocks. And then within the common stock arena, which sectors, which industries, which sectors are going to benefit from these trends? Um, as we moved into the 90s, um, the top, our top-down work indicated that, okay, here we go. This is really an integrated, interrelated global economy. So let's focus on these companies that have a strong strategic international business plan. And I can remember in 1989 seeing the cover of Fortune magazine. Jack Welch was on the cover mm-hmm. in 1989. That ended up being one of our – and I remember reading that article and thinking, wow – this guy really has a great business plan. Uh, management was really important to us. And I think the stock rose 4,000% during his tenure. Um, 82 uh, to 2,000, the timing was perfect. Uh, so Welch on the industrial side, Reuben Mark on the consumer side at Colgate. Mm-hmm. Colgate, um, late 80s, early 90s, just they were better known overseas than they were in this country. Uh, they were a bigger player in Asia than they were in the U.S. Um, so that ended up being one of our biggest consumer holdings. GE ended up being one of our biggest 
industrial holdings. And that flowed from the top-down work we did in terms of during the 90s, this move towards an integrated, interrelated global economy. Late, uh, mid to late 90s, it turned more into a lot of high-tech innovation, risk-taking, entrepreneurship, who was going to benefit from that. But I'll tell you what was really important from a top-down standpoint during the 90s uh, and um, is was I remember Greenspan giving Humphrey Hawkins' testimony um, saying that we have reached a point of price stability and we think the economy can grow at above trend um, at price stability, which was a dagger through the Phillips curvers. Right. Um, which, and, and the Phillips curve has reflected that ever since. That was so important. That was a great moment that he would let it run. And he did let it run. Mm-hmm. That was from a top-down perspective. That was very important. Let, let me throw some of your own quotes at you and, and have you um, respond or explain some of them because a few of these are quite fascinating. Quote, we could be in the early stages of a move by business away from an obsession with financial engineering and bottom line earnings growth towards business investment and top line growth. Uh, explain what you mean by that. And, and are we seeing any evidence of that yet? Yeah, I think we I think we're in the early stages of seeing some evidence, you know, during much of the 2000s, particularly post financial crisis, um, you had a very sluggish economic growth situation way below trend from a real growth standpoint. And you just had there was this obsession, I mean, a daily obsession with corporate America with streamlining, with downsizing, with stock buybacks, just ringing, ringing, ringing the costs. It's all on the cost side right. to generate that EPS. Forget the top line. You know, we're not going to worry about the top line right now. Well, But we're still seeing a ton of stock buybacks yeah, today. You're still seeing a lot of that. But my view is that um, we're on the verge of a pickup in, in um, business investment and in capital spending and business fixed investment, where the focus is going to be more on growing the top line because the you have another era here where we're moving into, there's a lot of deregulation going on. We've got tax reform that's happened on the corporate, mm-hmm. not so much on the individual side. Um, but, but a on, big on the cut on the side. corporate side, big for sure. Big cut on the corporate side. And I think we need to give it time. I think people are being premature to say, oh, you know, that hadn't, let me, this hadn't resulted in anything. I, I think you're just starting to see inklings of particularly the capital spending mm-hmm. and and here's the, the 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 kicker we could be in for another burst of productivity growth you know we've been it's been woefully under trend yes for um, a long time and and how much of that is a measurement issue and how much of that is genuine lack of gains in productivity there's probably a little bit of both mm-hmm. but um i mean just to give you an example business fixed investment um, during the last decade or so, it's been about half of the norm, and it would you you know you're just starting to see some pickup now. Say that again. Business fixed investment, yeah, ca- kind of capital spending, plant right. equipment, so capex property. is half of normal. Um, the, wow, it's been the growth has been about uh, the growth. Half, okay, has been about half of normal, but you're just starting to see, and productivity has been woefully inadequate. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, under one percent, where the Post World War II average is closer to two. We had that burst in the 90, late nineties. It was two point five, two point eight. First quarter year on year productivity growth was two point four. Uh, this that's year, about a ten year high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's too early to. I mean, I just we're starting to see some. Early you want to see a trend there? That and and that. Let me tell you, that is the silver bullet productivity growth. That's the silver bullet for um, wage, real wage growth. Uh huh. Um, for employment growth, for corporate. Um, Earnings and activity. I mean, it's, it's it's so important. It ties into one of our themes, top-down themes currently, which is the fourth industrial revolution. So that so. was the, literally the next question I was going to ask you. What is the fourth industrial revolution? How to? What does it mean? And and how would we position ourselves for that? Well, yeah, as I say, I mean, I think it really could have an impact on economic growth and on productivity growth, and and really, um, I guess you could say an ex- kind of an extension of the third industrial revolution which was more focused on um, information technology computers uh, the burst of productivity growth in the 90s was more computer hardware and software uh-huh. um, oriented I mean you, you might remember the four horsemen Microsoft and Cisco and Dell and Intel um, that was kind of the the, the core there um, now what we're seeing is uh, some really important fascinating new industries that could have a big impact on economic growth productivity give us, growth give us a few artificial examples artificial intelligence mm-hmm. um, robotics um, 
uh, information uh, automation, uh, high-tech automation, uh, information technology, quantum computing, 3D printing. You got uh, a whole array, 5G, the 5G uh, area where it's the fifth generation of, of wireless networks coming. Um, uh, industrial automation. So there are just some areas that uh, we're really focusing on companies that are involved in these areas because we think some of them some of it is already started but some of it there's probably a few years away in terms of coming to fruition but we think that we're poised when you when you when you mix these potential new technologies with the backdrop from a deregulation and tax standpoint where we've increased incentives for capital formation and for new business development i think when those two intersect we could be in for a, a, a good burst of productivity growth we have been speaking with Jay Bowen of Bowen Haynes and Company. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things pension investing relating. Uh, you can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Jay, thank you so much for doing this. I, I was quite fascinated by your background and the whole story just, uh, I, I am clearly confirming my priors because you land right in the sweet spot of my pre-existing beliefs. Most stuff is too expensive. Consultants mm -hmm. don't add any value. Um, most pension funds would be better off doing a simpler stock and bond portfolio as opposed to owning hectare acres of, right. of forest land in Canada and, and private equity. But that said... Um, but those wine vineyards in California, the, yeah, those are good, though. Well, you get to yeah. go on vacation, yeah. swing by, <laughs> hey, I'm one of the owners. You get the VIP treatment on the backs of whoever yeah. the we, uh, we say the that investors. we are unconventionally conventional. That's what our- I like that expression, <laughs> the unconventionally conventional pension fund. And you're not in Tampa. You're located in right. Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You've been there most of your whole life. Is that right? Pretty much. Uh, we The firm was actually started, my father started the firm in North, North Carolina mm -hmm. in 1972. Is that where you grew up? Uh, born in Atlanta, moved to North Carolina, then moved back to Atlanta. Uh -huh. Relocated the firm back in Atlanta in the late 70s. So. so I've been to Atlanta a number of times, and I have to tell you, very surprisingly impressive barbecue. But I know there's like a little bit of a barbecue controversy going on in Atlanta now. What's happening there? Well, of course, the real controversy is North Carolina. I mean, yeah. that's the core. That's the core raging debate that even gets physical. I mean, right. You know, you got the three regions, uh, central, western, and eastern. The, the eastern is- And what a, is the debate? And it's the sauce. Do you want dry, vinegar? wet, or vinegar? Is yeah, that you want a vinegar based, which is the eastern? Do you want molasses, the, 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 the sweet mustard molasses. kind of base? Oh which no, is the, the central? That's worth fighting over. Or do you want the more traditional tomato base? So, that molasses uh, tomato base, yeah. that sweet, caramelized over. Uh, but you're right about Atlanta. They've got all of them. They've got all three. <laughs> so right. you can make you can take your choice. So I didn't realize this issue, this controversy erupted in North Carolina. I think that's kind of the core. Yeah. And, and people have come to blows over Particularly this? Eastern versus the the central, you know. See, the, I'll get into a fight over someone over the mustard. Keep the vinegar mustard base, over. those yeah. people can get violent. The vinegar base, uh, my mother was born in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and right. she, she would even get violent with me if I didn't want the Eastern. I mean, you know. Oh, the, yeah, you got it. <laughs> and this is... This is re a real thing. This is not, this yeah, is going on um, still to this day. It's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. Right? Right. It's <laughs> all fun and games until the vinegar sauce comes yeah. out. Then there's real, uh, there's real trouble. Amazingly, New York actually now has decent barbecue, but mostly when people transplant here from, from Texas or Tennessee or somewhere right. and will open up a, not a New York City barbecue, but a barbecue joint in New right. York City. And there are a few smokers here. Um, also in Long Island city, there's this big, you walk three blocks away, you can smell oh, man. brisket. Smoking. Oh gosh. It's really, uh, really good. So, um, you're back and forth to, to 
Tampa, you're managing a number of other Florida pension funds. Um, where else uh, in the world are you um, managing money for uh, either pension funds or other clients? We're small. We're streamlined. We've got about $3 billion under management, mm -hmm. um, about 120 relationships, we, uh, foundations, endowment funds, uh, profit-sharing plans, pension plans, municipal funds, and family groups. Mm -hmm. um, we're not marketing-oriented. Um, we're not an asset gatherer who allocates the assets to other managers right. to pool funds. And we actually manage each account individually and pick the stocks or stocks and bonds if it's a balanced account. And the business comes through referrals. And we just, my father decided a long time ago, you know, instead of having an aggressive marketing effort, maybe we could have been a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. um, we would just focus on the investment side and rely on referrals for new business. And those are very satisfying relationship. Very satisfying relationship. I can imagine. Um, and long, the, our average client has been with us 20, 25 years. We've got some 30, 35, 40. I mean, wow. so when somebody comes on board with us, it's from a very high level and it's from a referral. And typically they're going to be with us for decades. Yeah. So do all the portfolios look alike? When you're buying individual stocks, do you run into an issue where I, I remember running into a, a trouble <clears throat> with Visa when we were buying it at 60, 70, 80? And two years later, it was two hundred. Can you, do you, does every portfolio look alike, or do you have to take into an account? Um, hey, we can't buy stock X Y Z for this account because it's so much pricier than it was when we were buying it for that account. Yeah, I mean, we do try to justify our holdings all the time. We're constantly trying to justify. And what my favorite thing to do, particularly when you're taking a twenty-year approach, and we've done this in Tampa on numerous occasions, is is to take the cost out of the stock. Uh -huh. You know, say we bought Visa and our cost in it was $10 million and now it's worth $40 million. Right. Um, I love taking the profits and taking the cost out um, and reducing the So in other words, you pull $10 million, let the yeah. $30 million run. Um, if and it still fits into our top-down approach right. and if the numbers still look good. Most of our portfolios, I mean, they're individually managed, so they're going to look a little different. Because just, just as you say, from a timing standpoint, right. Visa might look good one day and not five years later from a valuation standpoint, but the vast majority of our clients are very philosophically compatible, high mm -hmm. quality, long-term oriented. Uh, some of them may be a little more income oriented. Some of them are balanced. They want a balanced approach. They're going to look a little different, but the typical <coughs> institutional portfolio is going to look very similar. Um, <clears throat> so we mentioned um, spending, you spend a lot of time <clears throat> thinking about Fed policy as part of the, the top-down approach. Um, we're recording this literally on the day that there's a Fed meeting. What what do you think about this pressure uh, on the Fed to lower rates? Should the Fed really be a fully independent entity, or should they, you know, respond to the political pressures um, both from Congress and the White House? They should certainly be independent. Um, what would keep me up at night would be if congressional committee chairs were deciding Fed policy. Right. That, would, that would not be a good a good model. I do think the Fed really needs to be uh, shaked, shaken up. Mm -hmm. uh, we need. Why some, is that? I just think the models are flawed. Um, if you go back to 1913, um, I think that their August reputation belies their record. Okay. Um, well, their forecasts not, aren't it, especially it, it, good. It ain't pretty. I mean, right. you go back to 1913, uh, they, they presided over a, double of a doubling of prices during World War One. Mm -hmm. If you believe in Friedman and Schwartz monetary theory, which I do, the definitive history, they were the most responsible for the Great Depression. They presided over the doubling of prices during World War Two. They financed the inflation of the 70s. Um, I just... I think they need some new models, some new thinking, and I'm very encouraged that they're on it. They are on it. They're looking at, you got um, particularly Williams and, and Powell also. Mm -hmm. I think that Powell has said more than once that he is convinced that the Phillips curve is dead. Right. Um, he gave a very important speech in Jackson Hole last year, last August, where he addressed that issue. You're, you're, you're having, I mean, you got Williams with the flexible inflation flexible targeting you've got there, there, there's talk about price rule there's talk about uh nominal gdp p growth targets i just think it's time to shake it up now what i would like to see them do and which is why i think they should lower rates i really would like them to focus on price stability uh and, and a stable dollar stabilizing the dollar and if you look at these forward-looking price signals and i'm talking about the yield curve and mm -hmm. i'm talking about commodity prices 
um, and I'm talking about the foreign exchange value, the dollar, they're all saying the Fed is too tight. Right. Um, the yield curve, if you look at the five-year and the three-month, it's been inverted for a full quarter, and the 10-year briefly inverted and, and more or less, it's not especially steep. And I don't know if by the time people are listening to this, the 10-year versus the three-month is inverted, but it, it's certainly sending out warning signals. It is. And listen, I know that's not a secret that's <laughs> pretty well publicized the inverted yield curve but it's only given one false signal in post-war right. II, in the post-world war ii era and the, the the thing is that the, the the lags can be very long and variable in terms of terms of what it means but we're focused on that i think that they can engineer a soft landing i do uh the question right now is is this going to look like 1995 where they raised rates they almost inverted the curve they raised rates in february then they cut rates in July, I believe, uh, the, the curve was about to invert. And then we were off to the races. Um, mm-hmm. They did not invert the curve. Is it going to look like that, or is it going to look like 2007, where they just sat idly by when the curve was inverted? They waited, right. waited, waited. Or worse than that, 74, where you had an inverted yield curve and they kept raising rates. Right. I, mean, I don't think we're in for that because the inflationary expectations are so benign. Um, I do think they need to cut. Um, I, I think they will. It would be my preference, again, for them to focus on forward-looking price signals, stable dollar. Um, I would prefer them to be aggressive on the front end uh-huh. um, so they can be hawkish on the back end. Um, I'd like to see them move 50 at this next meeting. Really? Um, because I, I, I think if they don't, if they go too slow, they're going to still be behind the curve. I mean, if you look at the the, the natural, it's, it's almost like the natural rate. The, you know, you hear about the Wixillian natural rate is, right. is moving down, is trending down faster than the policy rate is trending down. So for them to catch up, they need to get, get ahead of that. How do you reconcile the different signals from the stock market, which keeps making new all-time highs, and the bond market, which is saying, hey, an economic slowing is coming? Yeah, yeah. I think the stock market is discounting a soft landing. Mm-hmm. There's no question. I mean, earnings earnings have been flat this year, and the market's up twenty percent. I mean, so surprising, right? It's um, and then the bond market has completely, as you know, I mean, it's completely rolled over. I think nominal growth expectations have really trended down. Real rates have trended down. Uh, it's just signaling a, 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 a reduction in the Wixillian natural rate of interest, a reduction in nominal growth expectations. There's just it's just a no question. There's been a slowing. And the Fed needs to acknowledge that and get out ahead of this thing. Uh, is this a global slowing that's affecting the United States, trade war or whatever? Or is this just a natural deceleration of the U.S. economy following the expansion since 2010? Well, you know what? I think the Fed made a mistake, in 20, particularly in 2018. They were just too tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've had nine rate increases. Um, you've had, they took, with quantitative tightening, they took about $700 billion out of the system. They're, they're just, it was just the liquidity. That combination. Because you li- can't, we can't say rates are too are very high now. They're not, and but you know what? A lot of people look at it just from an absolute standpoint mm-hmm. and think, oh, well, rates are still, but you know, it's all, it's relative. It's all relative. It's where they came from. Right. And I just think they moved too far, too fast. But I have to say, I think that's the main reason. Then you've got this, this trade dispute is a big overhang mm-hmm. that needs to be sorted out um, from a global economic growth standpoint. I've got to give Powell a lot of credit, though. Mm-hmm. This has been overshadowed by the policy rate debate. He acknowledged back in May that the QT, that it was too much, and they're, gonna, they're really ratcheting that back now, the, the QT. So the liquidity situation is just starting to improve. If you look at the numbers I saw on M2 growth, mm-hmm. on real M1 growth, the, the aggregates, the monetary aggregates are starting to stabilize and even trend up now. So Because people that, haven't really – a lot of um, – policy wonks are focusing on the rates, they're right. not focusing on quantitative tightening. Exactly, exactly. And, and you, that, you think that's, that's as significant as the rates? I do, I do. And I think Powell deserves credit. I think Powell is kind of an unsung hero in a way. I mean, number one, that speech he gave at Jackson Hole last August where he basically said the, it's, uh, the Phillips curve's it's done. Mm-hmm. It's done. I think that's a huge stride. It's a um, big admission for the, for the Fed anyway. Yeah. And then, the you know, Powell is pragmatic. He's pragmatic. You know, he's, he's a business. He's, he's in, and the, this on the QT, I think that's important that they're doing that. I think the Fed has some great innovative thinkers now, and I'm encouraged that they're looking at these new models, mm-hmm. that they're open to that. That the, I, I think they realize that some of these models are backward looking and not 
particularly right. effective. So I'm encouraged that it's on the table, and I hope they'll move to more of a rules-based approach, either a price rule, which is what we had. We kind of had a de facto price rule back in the 80s, Wayne Angel and Man- Manny right. Johnson. It was a kind of a commodity price rule and then with Greenspan, who was very good on the Phillips curve. Um, I, I, I've, become, I've warmed to a nominal GDP growth target, maybe, that kind of thing. But I, the, the important thing is they're open and they're looking and they're examining and they're exploring maybe some new models. I think that's important. I'm curious as to your thoughts about something. I was given President Trump's um, desire for low interest rates, and he's said this repeatedly, at least since he's been elected. Previously, he was against low interest rates. But once he took the office, hey, everybody likes low interest rates. I was very surprised that both Powell and Clarida were two well-known inflation hawks were appointed as chair and vice chair. What what are your thoughts on that? And how have they adopted to adapted to the current situation? Yeah, I've you know what I've got I've got a lot of faith in both those guys. I mean, mm-hmm. Claire does a, he's got a great background on For the sure. business side and on the academic yep. side. It's, he's just not a academic. No, I he's mean, a rock star. A real no world, doubt about real it. Real world deal. Um, and Powell's very pragmatic too. So I you know I don't know who's pulling the strings on these Fed appointments exactly, but I like the idea of shaking it up, shaking mm-hmm. the institution up. I know the Steve Moore, Herman Cain didn't work out. Well, I mean, those were kind of real uh, outlier uh, yeah. nominees. But the Judy Shelton and the St. Louis Isn't she nominee, a hard money? Isn't she a gold bug? Traditionally has been. Right. Um, but, <laughs> uh, if you, but if you listen to her recent interviews and testimony, and I'll be looking forward to the testimony, I mean, I, th- I think she's on it in terms of these forward look these price signals and what they uh, I, I just i like the idea of shaking the institution up mm-hmm. i really do even with um, a gold bug and, and by the way by the way <laughs> when it's all said and done trump will have appointed six out of yeah. seven right <laughs> that's mean, it that's it's his fed yeah there's I mean, no for better or worse right. there's no getting away with that right uh, i'm uh, like you I, i'm impressed with pal uh i'm very impressed with clarida the leadership is is important and i think they may be his two best appointments, yeah, appointments I agree. Across, across the board. So I have two specific portfolio questions. I don't want to, before we get to our favorite questions in our speed round, I don't want to pass these two by. The first is, given your your focus on stocks and bonds, how do you think about position sizing? How significant is that? How concentrated are you? Um, typically, how many holdings do you have? And And when you add a position or add to a position, how big or small does that usually get? Yeah, in ta- the Tampa model typically typically will have about 50 to 60 common okay. stocks with the balance in bonds. And, and importantly, on the bond side of the portfolio, we haven't talked about it, but it's strictly there for income and stability. It's a timing strategy based on interest rate anticipation. Right. We're, uh, the, it's a very conservative bond portfolio. They have to be, securities have to be rated A or better. Mm-hmm. Uh, which keeps them out of a lot of trouble. So treasury, uh, corporates, and not a whole lot more. It's just a very plain, high boring, quality, yeah. high quality, pure interest rate anticipation strategy, mm-hmm. buy and hold. We're not trading. A lot of people in the business, I see, they don't realize how much money can be lost on the bond side. I mean, mm-hmm. it can be very, very risky. So the bonds, we're taking enough risk on the stock side. Right. <laughs> we don't need to do anything on the bond side except be very boring and quality oriented. The stock side, typically 50 to 60 uh, nobody will accuse us of being a closet indexer. Right. In our smaller accounts, uh, usually 30 common stocks. And Tampa's how, bigger, so it's really more 50 to 60 How big stocks. can any one position get? And typically, we'll let them run and love to take the cost out. Um, certainly, if it gets to a point where it's representing, you know, 3 4 5% of the total equity portfolio, it really alerts us to thinking that we need to scale back some take, take a little um, but as long time. as the as long as the fundamentals remain in place and the we're enthusiastic about the long-term value then we have we never just sell it just because it's doubled or right. tripled you know it's always hopefully it's in perpetuity that's what and there, there's still some remnants in that portfolio from 1974 For, your fa- you have mm-hmm. holdings that your dad purchased yeah. you still haven't sold there, i mean they're not a lot <laughs> but there's there's some coca-cola um, i'm gonna guess and procter and gamble yeah, procter and, and gamble like you know uh, gillette was a big holding right and procter bought gillette i mean my father always he always joked again not that we're in this league but he said you know we were on coca-cola and gillette 
four or five years before Warren Buffett was. <laughs> well, you could thank him for help driving yeah. the uh, the appreciation up. And yeah. and my last uh, of these questions. So the past decade has seen huge inflows to passive indexing. Um, how do you think about this impacting what you do? Does it help your process? Does it hurt it? Does it create mm -hmm. more opportunities? How do you look at uh, the passive index trends? You know, with a 20-year approach, it, that gives us time to reestablish an equilibrium. I think over short term, I, it concerns me in terms of the increased volatility. And in I think that over, I saw some data that was amazing. High frequency trading now accounts for over half the volume on the New right. York Stock Exchange. I mean, you've, I think there's some unintended consequences that are going to occur when we have the next bear market. Um, I mean, there's a potential toxic. And, and when does that start? You know, the next uh, bear market. Can you the, give me if a the Fed can time? engineer that soft landing. I think we're mid cycle. So, uh, so in other words, be, this could be a really extended yeah. economic cycle of 12, you know, 14, 16 years. I told years. you about that Washington seminar I went to in 1986. One of the speakers was Beryl Sprinkle, and mm -hmm. he was Reagan's count chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He said something that I've never forgotten. And you hear it a lot now, but back then it was the first time I'd heard it. He said, you know, economic expansions don't die of old age. They die of inept policies, mm -hmm. and typically it's emanating from the Fed. Um, so just because we're inflation over tightening, and on the market side, they, excess I mean, the investor classic, enthusiasm. Since World War II, mm -hmm. when the curve's inverted, eighty-five percent of the time we have a recession in a bear market. I mean, right. that's just the deal. You know, stop, start, stop, start. Um, but it's not age, and we're we've just started the eleventh year of this expansion. There's no reason. We can't be mid-cycle mid if we handle the policy side correctly. Um, so, What did Australia um, go, 25 that's, years that's in right. counting? That's right. Uh, but the quantum, the, the, the passive, it, it concerns me that so much now is computerized mm -hmm. and technical. Um, as somebody said, um, to, to harness the wisdom of crowds, you actually need a crowd. <laughs> you know, uh, The price <laughs> discovery... Um, the, the, the fundamental valuation analysis is just, it's not, it's so much of it is automatic. Uh, the combination of the passive investing, the ETFs, the index funds. If the algorithms have a predisposed notion to buy, they can also, it can also be on the sell side. Sure. And, and so when you have, you could really have some outside, outside sized moves on the upside and the downside. I just suspect there are going to be some unintended consequences of this massive move into passive into algorithms that uh, I think during the next bear market could really be somewhat disconcerting. Now, over the long term, I don't think it matters because there'll be a equilibrium reestablished and it'll it'll sort itself out. It'll go but, too high, it'll go too low, but eventually yeah, it'll and, settle. But I tell you, I really feel for the individual investor, and I think it's one of the reasons individual investors underinvested. This volatility is just can keep you up at night. I mean, it's just incredible in terms of what it means just uh, psychologically to watch this volatility that can, and a lot of it's because of passive. I mean, you, you can see it uh, on the tape when, 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 okay, we're going to sell this bang, you know, it just depends on the, so. I, and it comes I, out of nowhere. The fourth quarter of 2018 really was a wake up call right, for a lot of people. Right. Um, there's one interesting point I'll make is that uh, the, I did a piece for Barron's on the 20 year investment approach and somebody answered online and said, you know, their fidelity broker said the best account he ever had was somebody that forgot he had the account. Right. That's right. <laughs> I've uh, heard, I've heard jokes like that so, and it's, it's absolutely uh, true. Yeah. So let me jump to my favorite questions in our, our speed rounds. We ask all our guests this and we always get some pretty interesting, um, answers. What was the first car you ever owned year making model? First car was a 1969 Sable Brown Oldsmobile Delta 88 two-door with a rocket 455 engine. That was a land yacht, wasn't that? That was a giant, uh, yeah. I remember it, the 88s. Very heavy, mm -hmm. but a strong engine. Tell oh, us. Oh, and it had, a, it, had a, it had a vinyl top, mm -hmm. and on one road tip, the wind got up under the top and right. blew off. The whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another fine General Motors product. Um, <laughs> tell us the most important thing we don't know about Jay Bowen. Gosh, I would say that my very first job was selling 
vibrating pillows. I don't know how Excuse many people me? know. That. I don't know how many people know that. Vibrating pillows. Vibrating pillows. What, what college, is the purpose of a vibrating pillow? College summer job. Um, it was a size of a throw pillow with batteries in the back, and it relieved people. Put it behind their back. They put uh-huh. their feet on it. They put their neck on it. It was a tension reliever, and um, I answered an ad that said. $200 a week guaranteed. And then in small print, it said, if you sell four a day, um, I answered, did you the sell ad, four a day? I answered the ad and I became the top salesman nationwide. Really? Yeah. So that was, that was my first job. Vibrating pillows. Well, wow. who are some of your early mentors? And I have to assume your father is going to, uh, loom large in that, that list. Yeah. On the investment side, there's just no question. I mean, when you work with somebody for 32 years, day in and day out, shoulder to shoulder on the investment side. I mean, it just, and for most of the day, you're talking about investments in the stock market. I mean, you know, you're, you're not exclusively, but it's just was so just the intensity, um, on financial markets just day in and day out. I mean, that is just, yeah, it's not, not even close. Um, on the, on the economic side, um, Arthur Laffer, Mm -hmm. um, is somebody I met in the mid eighties. Um, who had a big influence. He would have the, um, particularly when I really started to focus on monetary policy, um, trade policy, fiscal policy, tax policy. He would have these very high-profile Washington conferences where you were able to meet um, very high-level people um, in the Treasury, mm-hmm. uh, at OMB, uh, Council of Economic Advisors, the Fed, um, uh, Cato Institute. Um, I interned there. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. And uh, 1990 spent and was able to spend time with just some extraordinary people on the policy side. I mean, you had people like um, Milton Friedman and and Vernon Smith and James Buchanan and F.A. Hayek. I mean, mm-hmm. Nobel laureates who, who were around. You had conferences, um, particularly the annual monetary conference. Mm-hmm. You've got a very high profile annual monetary conference that. Uh, Jim Dorn runs where um, was really able to start focusing on the on on these issues and and the and and just uh, being in that environment uh, allowed me to really focus on from a top down standpoint some of these key policy issues. Very interesting. I, I've done a number of shows with uh, Art Laffer over the years, and my takeaway from him is always he's a really nice guy. Yeah. And I don't know how much people are always arguing with him on a policy right. base. Hold the policy aside. He just happens to be yeah. a genuinely nice person. Just the best of the best. <laughs> yeah, he, he's really, really great. So what investors influenced your approach to looking at the market and looking at stocks? Again, my father is just, is just so overwhelming. I mean, mm-hmm. just so overwhelming in terms of, of being molded, uh, in terms of taking a, high, a long-term approach, taking a high-quality approach. And the investment decision-making process, you know, being top-down from a thematic standpoint, but then being bottom-up when you get the when you get the candidates, the mm-hmm. candidates. I remember him coming in during the late '80s and saying, "Okay, we've got mid late '80s. Uh, I want you to look at Colgate and Gillette and Campbell Soup and Procter and Gamble and tell me uh, what looks the best from a." Uh, free cash flow standpoint, free cash flow yield, the dividend history, the management, the sales per share, the balance sheet. The, you know, it, it really helped me kind of formalize the process in terms of deciding um, not only top-down work, but then selecting the individual security. Hmm, quite um, interesting. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, investing-related, or others. What What do you like to read? Yeah, you know, outside, I read so much finance and economics right. during the day. I try to get away from that. Um, I really like biographies. I really like historical biographies. Um, Give us a I'm, few examples. Well, there's there's a couple now that, that I'm reading. Um, one, um, Hero um, by Michael Corda, uh, Life and Times of Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Just, a, just a fascinating historical figure. You know, he led the uh, Arab Revolt. Mm-hmm. Against the Turks in World War One. I. I mean, you know, the famous movie in the early sixties, sure. Peter O'Toole. But just a, a scholar, a writer, a warrior, uh, a journalist. Just a fascinating individual. I mean, uh, uh, I just uh, found that very interesting. Um, uh, another recent historical would be Andrew Roberts' new book on Churchill, mm-hmm. uh, which is a one-volume biography, which is hard to do. Right. But I would say it's probably going to 
in retrospect, ended up being the best one-volume really? biography. Andrew Roberts is just tremendous. He wrote The Storms of War on, on World War II. Mm-hmm. Just a great, great biographer. On the finance side, another book that's fascinating is The Lords of Finance. Oh, with uh, Lee Krum, Aquat, mm-hmm. something like that? Yep. That's a, I think that won the Pulitzer. It that did. was a really it interesting did. I think book. I think 09 or 10, it won. It did I win. did not, until I read that book, I had no idea how much monetary policy oh, man. led to World War II. Yeah, it's just amazing. Right? I mean, I love it, the focus on the four central bankers of the world back then in the 20s and what just the de- just how it all went down. Right, um, and it's and so beautifully written, too. Oh, it's just tremendous. So that's a great one. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the American novel, mm-hmm. the classic American novel, you know, Hemingway. I just Fitzgerald. read uh, The Old Man in the Sea on it's a flight. Just, they so never delightful. get old. And the thing about those books, particularly uh, 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 Great Gatsby or, or um, uh, uh, J.D. Salinger, um, you, can the read them, yeah, you can read them in one or two sittings. Right. Mean, and, and you can reread them 10, 20 years later. You can reread them. Um, on the modern side, it would be more um, Walker Percy, mm-hmm. the moviegoer, The Last Gentleman. He's just uh, great fiction novelist and then uh, tom wolf of course is, mm-hmm. i, I want to say um, uh, hemingway's old man in the sea is like a hundred pages like you could sit down and that's a short flight you can right. you could go through that whole uh quite quite right. interesting so tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience yeah that's a great one great question um just thinking about that and it would one that really stands out is we started a mutual fund in the early 2000s and it was just a mistake. I mean, we decided to, you know, we, we would have these inquiries in terms of, we would really love to invest with you. We don't meet your minimum. Um, so we had these visions. All right, we'll just start a mutual fund. That's no big deal. Oh my gosh. Lots of just marketing. the time and the money. And then the realization, the light bulb comes on that, wait a second, these things are sold over and out. They're just sold. Right. And we didn't have the ability to do that. And plus we were had to rely on somebody else for a lot of stuff. We I just didn't. It taught me that we needed to focus on our core uh, uh, discipline in terms of uh, the investment side with current clients and just rely on referrals. It didn't work. It was expensive. It was time-consuming. It was just a mistake, um, that venture. What do, you, what do you do for fun out of the office? Um, gosh, it would be dominated by triathlon racing. Oh, really? Yeah. Quite, triathlon. Quite yeah. interesting. Uh, Tell us what you're most optimistic and most pessimistic about today. Gosh, I I would say I'm most optimistic about just the continuation of the entrepreneurial and innovative zeal that this company, excuse me, country possesses. It's just incredible. I think the energy and the drive, the American spirit that's still there and with new company startups and the vision, I just think that's so exciting um and i i guess that ties into what i'm most i guess what i would be concerned with is that we somehow we lose that mm-hmm. and we fall into more of the european lethargic uh state where we're growing it but you know you have demographic issues yeah. you just got this uh, financial repression environment where you have abnormally low interest rates, low growth rates, demographic issues, a lot of disincentives for capital formation and new business startups. I would hate to see us fall into that model um, that you're seeing somewhat in Japan and Europe. I want right. to keep our zeal going here. Our last two questions. If a millennial or a recent college grad came and said they were thinking about a career in asset management, what sort of advice would you give? I would say that there's more than one way to do this. Um, don't necessarily take the conventional route. You don't have to have a finance degree. You don't have to major in finance. There are all kind of different ways to be successful in this business. And um, no job is too small. Absolutely, you learn something. I don't care what you're doing. If you're in the door at any institution, man, I mean, just take advantage of it and get in the door and, and work within that environment to see where you're, where you're comfortable and where you can flourish. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew when you began almost 40 years ago? Right. Guy, you know, the one that stands out is that I wish I'd put the entire portfolio in 30-year treasury bonds in 1982. <laughs> sure. Made, made everybody's there, there were long <laughs> stretches where they were beating stocks, weren't there? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something. Um, 
But really, you know, I would say that you don't always have to be right. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't always have to be right. I could really beat myself up initially for being wrong every now and then. And and you're going to be wrong. The other side of that, you're going to be wrong. And you need to learn how to absorb it, to process it, to accept it, and to take the loss and move on. Um, Great, Great advice. We have been speaking with Jay Bowen of Bowen Haynes and Company. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch uh, on Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are found. And you can see any of the previous 250 such conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together this conversation each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Michael Boyle is our producer slash booker. Charlie Vollmer is our chief engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.